Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Author Elaine Taylor writes, a few years ago, she was whining to her daughter about her imminent crossing of that dreaded age Rubicon, the big 5-0. The best of my life is behind me, she said. I'm entering the period of throat waddles and colonoscopies every five years and uselessness, irrelevance. Being both uh, blunt and wise, her daughter said, you know, someone who feels as sorry for herself as you do ought to go out and do something for someone who's got real problems. And that was the beginning of Elaine Taylor's work with Raphael House, a shelter for the homeless uh, homeless San Francisco families. We'll be talking with Elaine Taylor on the program uh, today, along with Lloyd Pendleton, who is uh, former director of uh, Utah's Homeless Task Force. Uh, we welcome in first Elaine Taylor. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, I want to hear your your story and your work with uh, Raphael House. I understand you're now, um, you know, teach at Duke, I think, and you're over in North Carolina. I am in North Carolina, and I do actually teach a, a story structure class at Duke through their uh, continuing education program. And your latest book it's wonderful is wonderful here. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard it. The Triangle Area, yeah, beautiful. It is, yeah. Uh, so the latest book is Karma, Deception, and a Pair of Red Ferraris, which is uh, creative nonfiction. It is, as a matter of fact. Yeah. This is this is your it, story, basically. It is my story, and I certainly never intended to write a memoir or didn't uh, find myself worthy. You know, I think that's for Tina Fey and Bill Clinton types of people. <laughs> right. But I Very got good. involved in this because my journey from uh, redneck, white trash, blue-collar Texas, where a girl is always knows she's not nearly as valuable as a good hunting dog, that's sort of how we're brought up, that's a hunting dog, by the way, if you don't speak Texan. <laughs> but that sort of sets your, your path for life, and mine was a long path trying to figure out that I was indeed worthy of love. So that's what the book is about, what karma deception is about. But a significant thing uh, in that is my experience with Raphael House, because along that trajectory, I was trying to find my own self-worth, um, and as you mentioned, feeling useless at about age 50, which is kind of ridiculous, um, <laughs> that was a part of the journey that made a significant impact on my life. And I was delighted to be able to include it in Karma Deception. Well, we'll, we'll hear uh, the story, and I want to have you tell me about your work with Raphael House. We bring in uh, Lloyd Pendleton. Uh, Lloyd Pendleton, uh, uh, you retired, I guess, in June uh, from uh, your post of director of Utah's Homeless Task Force. I did. I had served, I uh, worked at the state for nine years implementing this 10-year plan to end chronic homelessness. And uh, we have had some great success with their efforts in Utah, and we got a lot of national publicity, including the New Yorker magazine, John Stewart Daily Show, um, Mother Jones did a cover story on us. And so because of that success, I've been asked to speak across the country. So I left state employment, and I'm doing that consulting nationally now. All right. I'll ask you how we're how we're doing with that ten-year uh, plan, and and uh, and what how would you know what problems remain? Of course, there are problems that remain. Um, let me uh, turn to Elaine Taylor. So, um, so tell me about this. Uh, it's very funny what you write. I don't know if that maybe it was a little kind of a stinging rebuke from your daughter. You know, get, <laughs> go out and do something. It actually wasn't. It was actually sort of a, you know, I'm not usually a t type of person to feel sorry for myself. So that was kind of the knife to the heart of my pity party. But it immediately kicked me into planning mode and thinking, okay, I can do something here. And I do want to tell that story. But can I first just say that I'm honored to be on with Mr. Pendleton. I'm aware of what he's done in Utah. 
It's amazing. I'm really hoping that the rest of the country does become aware of it. I'm delighted to hear he's speaking, and um, hopefully we'll be able to make some progress with the whole homeless situation. So Certainly. Thank you, and I'm coming to North Carolina later this year, I think. Oh, I'd love to meet you, so please let me know. I'm here. Sorry about all of this personal stuff. Oh, that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> all right. So the way I got involved with Raphael House, you've set that up very well. That's exactly how it started. But at that time, I was working for an investment firm in San Francisco. I was an IT headhunter, which meant I was helping the firm recruit and hire their technology, computer technology professionals. And every year at Christmas time, as you know, many companies are inclined to do, our group within the company adopted a family, which would be a homeless family, and we would get their meager wish list of, of things that they wanted for Christmas, and our department would then fulfill that that list. We would gift wrap them and deliver them. Actually, generally, to if the person, if the family was already moved out of Raphael House, we would deliver it to their personal home, or else we were invited to meet the family when we delivered the gifts to Raphael House. And so, of course, every year when we did that, I would say to myself, "Okay, I'm going to stay involved. I'm going to I'm going to stay in, with, involved with Raphael House and do some good deeds because." I had a natural affinity for this homeless shelter for families because for many, for for more than a decade, I was a single mom living right on that border and always concerned about being homeless myself. Fortunately, I never was, but it sort of made me, it attracted me to these people who were struggling, the struggle with which I was at least uh, sort of familiar. So I went through the process talked to the volunteer coordinator, did the background check, and I went for my first shift as a volunteer there. And the work that I was going to do as a volunteer was once every two weeks in the evening, on Tuesday evening, I would go at 6 o'clock, and my job was to help the families as they were getting settled in. It was very structured. Raphael House is very structured. And I do want to mention that Raphael House focuses on the people who are in transition homelessly, unlike what uh, Mr. Pendleton has done, which is the really hardcore homeless. The people who come to Raphael House were families who, for some reason, had found themselves homeless. It was generally because someone lost a job or because of an illness. Sometimes it was um, because of Um, abuse in the family. Sometimes we didn't deal with addiction at all because we weren't qualified to do that. But these were families that were clearly on on the road to recovery. And unlike what Mr. Pendleton did, these were actually the cream of the crop, if you can say such a thing about homeless families. These were the ones with the most potential to go back into society and be fully functioning. And that was the mission of, of Raphael House. So the first night I went there, um, we, I met with Father David. The Raphael House is a, it's actually a house. It was built as a, a hospital back in the 1940s, and it was run by a religious order from the Eastern Orthodox religion. And so I went there my first night, and I saw Father David, and he welcomed me, and he said, we have a new family here today, the Davises, and we'd like you to sit with them during dinner, which was the first thing a volunteer did, was go and have dinner with the families um, in the communal dining room. And so he said, because everything is new to them. Of course, it's all new to me, too. But before I got to Raphael House that night, I was thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to do a good deed, but I'm kind of nervous about it because what can I possibly have in common 
with homeless people because to that point the homeless people that I saw were the ones in San Francisco at Union Square who panhandled on the corners or slept in the doorways. I didn't deal with any, I didn't see homeless families, but I thought they must be really different than I am. So I was a little anxious about it, thinking, you know, how am I going to communicate with these people? What will we talk about? And so when I got there and I saw the Davis family that Father, da- that Father, Ross, uh, sorry, Father David pointed out, I could see that they were really nervous themselves, as one would certainly expect. So I approached them, and Mrs. Davis was, she was very reluctant to make eye contact. She was fidgeting like she was counting rosary beads or something, and nobody was looking at me except Mr. Davis. And I introduced myself. I stuck out my hand, and he shook my hand, and he had this defiant look in his eyes. He was and his hand was was all calloused, you know, his he was sunburned and he was clearly a working man. He had spent his life working. There was no question about that. And so it occurred to me for the first time that how ashamed these people are and how defeated they feel. And most of the times when we hear the rhetoric about the homeless, it's about they're not as ambitious, they're lazy, they really don't care about their families, they just want somebody giving them the handout, and i that was my first insight into the fact that that's just simply not true, at least not for the families that I was dealing with. Mm. So it was actually sort of a humbling experience for me to be there in the presence of this this man whose dignity had been stripped from him by whatever circumstance. We never asked, you know, the volunteers never asked people how they ended up there, so I don't know. But it was clear that, that he was just in a world of hurt because he had failed his family. So it was a very humbling experience, and that was sort of the beginning of my experience with Raphael House. Hmm. And you go on to say that, uh, speaking of the homeless, they are me. I'll follow up with that. I want to turn to uh, Lloyd Pendleton. Um, So I wonder first if you could tell me your journey in perceptions. I was reading an an article, a, a, a profile of you, and and where you said you admitted, and I think you're not alone um, early on in, you know, in your thoughts about homelessness, you were thinking, uh, well, they should just get a job, right? That is true. I was reared on a small ranch out in the west desert of Utah, south of Twilla. And um, when I'd come to Salt Lake, I'd see homeless people, and I would say to myself, sometimes out loud, those lazy bums, why don't they get a job, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, and that was the attitude that I had as I went through my early adulthood and middle adulthood. And it wasn't until I became involved at the homeless shelter. A matter of fact, I was loaned out by my former employer, which was the LDS Church. And I spent a year at the homeless shelter helping them reorganize and turn themselves around financially. And it got me exposed to an eyeball, eyeball to contact with homeless individuals that were in the shelter. And I learned that they were individual just like me and so I morphed in my understanding and my compassion to realize that many times they don't have boots to pull themselves up by and they've had a very challenging childhood lots of abuse traumatic brain injuries you name it and so I began to realize that this wasn't a very helpful attitude and that I as a community member needed to give my time and resources to give them hope and an opportunity to make a a choice that can help them uh, improve their life. 
And the housing first model that we learned out of New York City became a very good model to deal with the very challenging, most challenging homeless individuals, which is what they're called chronically homeless. And so we made that commitment to reach out to that group. And so I have changed tremendously, although I still believe there's accountability. And when we mm-hmm. put into in, individuals choose to come into housing, they still pay rent, 30% of their income or $50, whichever is greater. There is accountability and responsibility. At the same time, we as a community and I as an individual need to reach out with love and compassion, not condemning and judging of where they are and why they're there, but to give them hope. And so that's, I went through a real change in my whole approach in interacting with homeless individuals. Let's take a break. When we come back, I'll ask uh, each of my guests, who are the homeless? Um, Lane Taylor says, they are me. And, uh, the, and she was a single mother uh, earlier in her life, and uh, but for you know the grace of God and uh, lost paycheck uh, she might have been homeless i think a lot of us could say this the same we'll uh, take a look at that question we'll take a look at uh, utah's uh by all accounts very successful um program uh, to leading to uh, the goal uh, the 10-year goal to end chronic homelessness in utah and we'll talk about what remains to be done the current problems more following the break The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. The amount of water you consume every day plays an important role in maintaining your health. Water makes up 60% of your body weight. Every day you lose water, and it's important to replenish your water supply to maintain proper body function. Experts recommend 8 to 10 glasses of water each day for good health. Water helps maintain the balance of body fluids. Water can also help control calories, especially since water is calorie-free. Water helps keep skin looking good and healthy. Water can help keep you full and your blood sugar at a normal level. Water can also aid in a healthy weight by flushing out toxins. How can you get all your glasses of water in a day? Try having a glass of water at every meal. Also eat more fruits and vegetables because they have a higher water content and bring a water bottle on the go. This is Nicole Jackson from the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our topic is homelessness on the program today. And, uh, The scripture says the poor are always with us. Perhaps the homeless are always with us. What can we do? What should we do? We're talking with Lloyd Pendleton, who until recently was the director of Utah's Homeless Tax Force. He now is going around the country uh, talking about lessons Utah has learned. And uh, we're talking with Elaine Taylor, who's author, most recently, of uh, creative nonfiction. It's called Karma Deception and a Pair of Red Ferraris. Uh, She's been involved in many things during her career. And one of the things that she's done is to be involved in the Raphael House. That's a shelter for homeless San Francisco families. She's now living 
in the uh, Research Triangle area in North Carolina. You can join the program. We'd love to know what you think about this. Perhaps you have a story. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or our email is upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter as well. So Lloyd Pendleton, this question I posed before the break, who are the homeless? Well, uh, they're, they're homeless citizens, just like the rest of us who had a real challenging life. Um, <clears throat> many of them were abused in children, or when they were children, and have had a difficult time keeping their life stable, in and out of work. But many times the families, of which about 46% of our homeless population are families, individuals and families, are just had a rough patch, lost their job, medical deals, divorce, abuse. Those who are in domestic violence shelters are homeless, counted as homeless. So it's really a cross-section of um, our citizenry. And I call them our homeless citizens rather than homeless homeless individuals or those people. They're part of our community. And so if they're hurting, then we're hurting as a community. So I think Mm -hmm. it behooves us as a community to reach out and to give them hope and to give them an opportunity to make better choices. So Lynn Taylor, from your experience, who, who are the homeless? Well, I agree with excuse me what Mr. Pendleton just said, and they are really people. And the idea that they just need to get a job or whatever is, is what we generally hear. I know that recently I posted on my Facebook page um, the article about Raphael House, and I said in there, you know, uh, the difference between those people and me when I was young and struggling was that I had better luck. And I got a response from a man that I don't know him, I don't know who he is, but he said it wasn't luck, it was hard work. And I wrote him back and I said it was absolutely hard work, but I never lost my job at an inopportune time. My landlord never sold my building out from under me. I was never burned out of my apartment as some of the people that I met at Raphael House were. They were all working for their families just like I was. And the thing that was most surprising to me was to realize how much I am them and they are me. And, for example, the first thing I learned was that those parents at Raphael House wanted for their kids exactly what I had always wanted for mine. They wanted safety. They wanted security. They wanted love. They wanted education. They wanted stability, which is what every parent in America wants. They're really no different than the rest of us. The other thing I learned is that the families at Raphael House, the parents, whether it was a single mom or a single dad or a family with two parents, those people, those parents went to work every day while they were at Raphael House, and they contributed, just as Mr. Pendleton said, they contributed to their their own keep there, but mostly what they did was they were required to save the money from their their various forms of income so that they were building the nest egg that would allow them to be self-sufficient again. But if they weren't working, then they were in some sort of a training class, a vocational training or whatever, so that they could become productive citizens. And they were me. The difference was when I went to work every day as an IT headhunter, I wasn't working at minimum wage or below minimum wage. You know, I was assured a good income, so I was much more financially stable than they were probably ever going to be. But they wanted the same things for their children. They wanted their children to be educated. They wanted, just like all of us, or many of us, for their children to have a better future 
than what they were living now, than the parents were able to give them. And, of course, homelessness uh, will frequently really mean uprooting the kids in their educational pursuits, and that was part of what Raphael House did was to ensure that continuity and that stability. But those people are me. They're you. And, and it's so hard to believe until you've actually been among them and uh, thought about them differently than, than, like I said, the rhetoric that we hear about them. We turn back to Lloyd Pendleton. Um, an ambitious goal, a 10-year goal, end chronic homelessness in Utah. And I think we're, what, near the end of that 10 years? Uh, we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you say end chronic homelessness, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, our goal is that every one of our chronically homeless individuals and homeless veterans will have a housing opportunity. Because and we've made that commitment, and we are we are now down to about 200 chronically homeless individuals that are not yet housed, down from 2000 and 2005. And we know that there are some because of mental health issues and whatever. Even though we give them a housing opportunity, even several times, they will choose to stay on the street. So Utah will not make the claim that we've ended chronic homelessness. We will say we have given all of our chronically homeless individuals and homeless veterans housing opportunities. We still honor their choice, and we'll continue to outreach to them. And it's called functional zero. You're down to that. See, just like uh, when you talk about full employment in the the economy, 4% unemployment is considered full employment. There's that group that's always moving, that are changing jobs. And so 35 to 4% is full employment. So there is a functional zero we are working towards and we're almost there uh which is which is amazing i don't know if you thought you know we'd get there at the beginning of the 10 years oh yeah i had no doubt oh you did okay oh no i mean when i when i saw the vision of what was being uh created and that they would that these individuals that are chronically homeless cost the community 20 to forty thousand dollars a year per person on the street in emergency room visits EMT runs, jail times, interactions with the police. <clears throat> Economically, it made sense because you can put them into housing for $12,000 with case management. So economically, you could make the case, but also from a humanitarian standpoint, it made sense. And because Utah is very collaborative, in 2003, when I went to this conference and I caught the vision, I said to myself, if there's any state in the union that can accomplish this goal, it's the state of Utah. Because we are collaborative as a group of agencies and people, and, and we're very compassionate, and, uh, and we have some great champions. Mm. So I uh, was very committed that this could happen and that we could give a housing opportunity to all of those individuals. There are just only 2,000, not 50,000, so it's very doable. So I was a believer. Now, can this model be successfully implemented in, you know, large, very large urban centers where the, sure. the population homeless, the homeless population is very large? Sure. And you have more resources there. And, you know, people say we don't have the resources. And in reality, you'll never have all the resources you need to solve every problem you can dream up. It's the political will to be able to repurpose the existing resources and get additional resources where you can but to focus on getting those individuals a housing opportunity. So, but what I found is it takes champions, and especially in the political area, a mayor, a governor, uh, you know, somebody, or a business leader that says this can be done and brings the people together 
makes those realignments of resources because we know how to do it. <clears throat> the housing first model works and proven statistically in research. So we know the answer is getting them housing. I wonder if making the commitment to make it happen. Yeah. I wonder, <clears throat> I, I'm guessing that you're having been raised on a ranch, you, you're probably aligned with, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people in Utah who perhaps have to be convinced that this shouldn't be a, a handout, that, that, that's, that somehow, you know, we don't want people taking advantage of the system. You do hear that sentiment uh, in, in uh, you know, in Utah, and I wonder if you could address that with regard to work with the homeless. Sure. Yes, there is that mindset, and I had that same mindset. And that's why when, you know, one of the challenges was when I'd be interviewed or we'd be interviewed, we would always tell the reporters that they, these individuals who now are in housing pay 30% of their income or $50, whichever is greater. Most of the reporters don't put print that. They just print free housing for homeless in Utah. So that doesn't help on the message. But yes, as I went around the state, worked with political leaders, worked with service providers, and said there's accountability here. But we as a community have a moral obligation to reach out and give them a housing opportunity. Economically, it makes more sense. They're costing us more while they're on the street. They just aren't there, and you don't see them, and they don't cost us. They're costing us. Mm -hmm. And the housing first model works because we proved it in a pilot. And so, yes, I've had those discussions, but basically because most of the people here in Utah or moral-based, uh, spiritually-based, religiously-based, and all these theologies teach that we, as human beings, have the opportunity and responsibility to reach out and serve those that are in need. So it was a discussion, but people pretty well understood and were willing to become part of the solution. I was talking to some friends recently who had brought up, a, I thought, an interesting point. Uh, while they appreciated the fact that uh, Utah's gained some fame for some success in this this area uh, they said that there perhaps was they thought there was perhaps a danger in this that uh, that the perception of people maybe in Utah let alone people outside of Utah would would think oh we you know we we're reaching our 10-year goal therefore uh, you know we're done I wonder if you worry about the same thing no I don't worry about that because our service providers homeless service providers realize there's still many more issues. We have a lot of homeless families. Uh, so if you go down to the homeless shelter in Salt Lake City, you still see a lot of homeless people and a lot of homeless family members. So it's hard to parse out the chronically homeless. So that's a unique subset of the homeless population. How does define what that uh, definition is? It's an unaccompanied adult with a disabling condition that's been homeless a year or more or four times in three years. So that's the target population. And, and what we want to have in place is enough resources so as soon as a person gets identified as chronically homeless or homeless veteran, we have them a housing opportunity. So within 30 days, they're into housing or have the opportunity to go into housing. Families were not there yet. So the goal will be shifted to 2020 to have housing opportunities for the families and the homeless youth. So that's the new goal that's coming up. We're almost mm -hmm. there on the chronically homeless, mm -hmm. and then we just keep that system in place and expand it to address the homeless families and homeless youth. Yeah. Elaine Taylor, I want to turn back to you. Uh, I wonder what you've 
what principles you you think are the are the most important in terms of working with with the homeless so trying to solve this this problem of course Lloyd Pendleton is working on on the, the housing first model and ending chronic homelessness then on to some other goals I wonder what you su- would suggest to governments or even to individual people I'm trying to help here that's an interesting question. Uh, one of the things about Raphael House is that it is a privately funded organization. It takes no government money, neither state nor federal. And so it's individuals who are funding this model and have been since it was initiated in the early 1970s. And so what we, what I learned from that is when it's a government organization, there are, as with all government organizations, there's, you know, goodwill and people are trying to do the best they can, but there are a lot of restrictions and things that don't necessarily work for each individual. It's the, you can't really apply the one-size-fits-all. So the Raphael House model, until I'd heard about the housing first and, and the fact that they're taking on the chronically homeless, that Raphael House model was, I thought, the model that would, if we could get it to scale, would help the problem. Because Raphael House brings these people in. They Each family has one bedroom. It's a like a 12 by 15, no private bath. They have one bedroom, and that's where they live. But when they come to Raphael House, they make a commitment. They're interviewed, they're accepted, and they make a commitment for specific things. For example, ob- the obvious, no drugs, no alcohol. But also things like there's a curfew. As a Raphael House parent, you must be back at Raphael House by 5.30 every day unless there's a job issue, unless you're working a little later than that. But it's a requirement. And what Raphael House does beyond providing a home and providing, you know, three meals a day and whatever essentials you need like baby diapers, et cetera, these parents are in parenting classes. They're in budgeting classes because there's a reason they got to be homeless in the first place. They had no clue how to manage their finances. So what Raphael House is doing is preparing them to go into the world and not be homeless again and also to raise better citizens, their own children, through learning parenting skills because, as Mr. Pendleton said, many of the people who end up homeless, and that's true of homeless families as well, were abused. They were certainly not brought up in functional middle-class families, most of them, and so they don't know how to parent either, and so they're continuing, they're, they're perpetrating this cycle of, of not just homelessness, but I guess you'd call it bad parenting, the citizens that, that end up in the courts and that end up in the jails. So that was the model that I thought was going to be the one, but the question is, how do you get to scale with that? So I think that Governments, I'm delighted about what they're doing with Housing First because that's going to open the conversation. Just pointing out to government officials and to, to people in general that we're paying for these people, whether you think you are or not. Those are hidden costs. And we can not only save money, which some people think is the most important thing, we also are setting up a better society. We're, we're making society more stable. So. I actually forgot your original question. But I no, that that's no, you've you've addressed it. Yeah, I was I was okay. talking about principles and models. Yeah, uh, here here is um, here is uh, an email from Gary and Logan. Um, he says I recently saw a post from the photographer Humans of New York. Uh, this by the way, you can find these at humansofnewyork.com, uh, who painted homelessness in a really interesting way. His photo is of a woman who is homeless but still has her gym membership and says she visits movie theaters to get sleep now. She notes that the worst part for her is how people associate homelessness with craziness, something, uh, Gary says, I think uh, many of us do. I, wonder, I can start with Lloyd Pendleton on this one. What, uh, what do you think? 
Well, yes, and 40 to 50 percent of those that are chronically homeless have mental health issues, and 30 to 40, almost 50 percent have substance abuse issues, and many of them have co-diagnosis, so have both. So yes, that is a uh, perception that it's it's uh, valid for a high percentage of the individuals that are there, and so that so when you're housing that population, you have to realize you're going to have that challenge to deal with. And you still work with them to keep them in housing, keep them, get them stabilized. So screening them in rather than screening them out. Hmm. And that, that's a huge shift for a property owner to say, we're going to take 100 or 220 chronically homeless individuals and put them into one facility. Because you do have mental health issues to deal with. And with Housing First, you, you get in a facility and, and then you start working on the problems? That's the case? Right. Well, the whole concept for Housing First is, well, first of all, the old model was they need to be housing ready. So they have to have their mental health. They've got to be on their medications. They've got to be clean, dry, and sober. Now that you're clean, dry, and sober, we'll put you into housing because you'll succeed more effectively. What the housing first model is, no, you need to put them into housing first because safety, as Elaine talked about, is really key and security. And if you're worried about where you're going to sleep tonight and what you're going to get to eat tonight, you're not going to be dealing with your treatment programs and your medications. You can't keep them secure or refrigerated. So you put them into housing right off the street, put them into housing first. Then you work with them and case manage them and help them begin to realize this is their place. They can stay there until they pass. This is permanent. So once they work, and many of them won't believe that for several weeks, and as you begin to continue to work with them, they realize this is their place, then that anxiety reduces. Research shows that alcohol consumption, drug consumption goes way down because they've been self-medicating to deal with all of the problems on the street. Then you can begin to start to help them work into treatment programs and then into employment opportunities. So housing really is the stabilizer. That's the first major step. It isn't the end. It's the first major step, and it's called housing first. Mm-hmm. Then you wrap service around them. So it becomes a very effective and key ingredient in this step to stability and integration back into the community. So I assume that uh, one marker of success is you don't have a revolving door. In other words, people get into the program and they, they, they move on and they don't come back to, to homelessness? Correct. I wonder how we're doing. So, well, what we find is nationally about 85% of these will be housed 12 months later. For us, and we've housed so 13, 1,400, basically 10% move out successfully, they reconnect with family, they find a significant other, and they move out into market rate housing. Um, 2% die, 6% we evict, but when we evict them, we move them to another facility to give them a second and third chance. And after, if they, if they, and the reason they get evicted is because they don't pay their rent, which is rare, or they beat up a neighbor, uh, or they sell drugs. So they'll be called and they'll be taken to jail. Police will be called. So about 6% will be evicted out of this. And um, so we have a pretty good track record of once they get housed, of staying there. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, about drugs. I was reading an article recently in the, in the Tribune, uh, Chris Smart's uh, article, uh, talking about uh, homeless people congregating in a new spot and uh, businesses around being nervous about that. And and one gentleman he interviewed uh, talked about uh, that there's a, a lot of you know drug dealing, and he and he felt in some 
times unsafe. I want to talk about that. And I uh, also want to talk about Lloyd Pendleton in, a, in an article here. You talk about a man who, who was housed, and, um, and it was a while before he would even come inside and, and sleep on the bed. There's, there's some internal things going on there, I'm sure. We'll talk right. more with Lloyd Pendleton. We'll talk with Elaine Taylor and uh, with you, hopefully. Homelessness is our topic following the break. Zach Ibrahim was supposed to become a terrorist, like his father, but that plan was derailed. I had to basically realize that my father was an extremist and that he was willing to take innocent people's lives for his cause. Stories of transformation next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation, featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Thanks for listening today. I'm Tom Williams. It's Access Utah. We're talking about homelessness. Utah has an ambitious goal. We're nearing the end of this, ending chronic homelessness in the state. We're talking with the former director of the Homeless Task Force in Utah, Lloyd Pendleton. He is now resigned from that post so he can go around the uh, the uh, country and uh, talk about the issues of homelessness and lessons learned. We're also talking with Elaine Taylor who is author most recently of Karma, Deception, and a Pair of Red Ferraris. It's a work of uh, creative nonfiction. Uh, uh, she uh, got involved uh, with Raphael House in San Francisco. It's a life-changing experience uh, for her. She now lives in North Carolina. The number to reach us here is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. Um, I'm going to relate a personal story, and I want to direct this first to Elaine Taylor. Um, I was recently in Salt Lake, and uh, I going from the hotel to where I was going to uh, eat at the Rio Grande Depot, I frankly took a wrong turn. I didn't mean to do this, and turned down, as it turns turns out, the, the street um, where the homeless shelter is. There's a bunch of homeless people gathered, I think, waiting to get into the shelter, and I was interested and a little disturbed about what I was feeling, so, or, or maybe I shouldn't be. Anyway, as I was walking down this street, I, was, I thought first, am I safe? You know, is one of these people going to attack me? Um, and then I, then I got, felt guilty about that, and then I thought, well, should I interact? And then I didn't end up doing that, and I had all these conflicting emotions as I walked down the street. Um, I wonder if you've, you know, taken that journey. Lane, Lane Taylor. Oh, most definitely. And I think that what you've ex- expressed is very common. We don't know what to make of things that are foreign to us. That's just across, you know, all of humanity. So homelessness is one of those things. And the question about interacting, I've done exactly the same thing. Even after all of this experience with Raphael House, I still will see homeless people and think, should I interact? And my experience is I've tried on occasion, and I think what I've realized is that they're no trusting than the rest of us, and they've been hurt by people, you know, who look like us and talk like us and whatever. So I think an interaction really, until it gets to be more significant, is is 
I hate to say in vain, we want to recognize they're human, but it doesn't accomplish what we would hope. So that discourages us, I think, from taking a next step. But if I could just go back quickly to the, the, the man who asked about the Humans of New York. Certainly, right of, yes. They're, they're an amazing website, Humans of New York. And the idea of this woman, this homeless woman, maintaining her gym membership. So a couple of things about that. A, a few years ago, there was a big news story about some surfer dude in California who was on welfare, and he was homeless, and he was getting all of the, the government assistance, and he talked about, he was interviewed, and he said, yeah, man, I go to the grocery store, and I get lobster tail for my dinner. So the, the thing, point I'd like to make is to, to here, first of all, there are always going to be scammers who are taking advantage of those who are generous, but there are scammers everywhere. It's not with the homelessness alone. You know, there's scammers on Wall Street, there's scammers in accounting, there's scammers in the legal system, there are people who steal from the grocery store that employs them. So there are always going to be those people. But hopefully in our society, they're the unique ones. And the thing that I find most distressing about these scammers who are homeless is that they're sort of the bright and shining object that we can point a camera at and say, oh, yeah, see, it's not doing any good, whereas the masses, many of whom it is helping, they don't get the attention because their stories are not exciting. They're not buying lobster for dinner. This woman with a gym membership, I don't know her story, but I can say that as human nature, and especially in the material society in which we live, someone who is as beaten down and as, um, you know, in a desperate situation where she doesn't even have a home, what's that person going to brag about to somebody who she's talking to? We all want to have dignity. We all, it's inherent in human nature. We all want to feel like we're a winner in some way rather than just the loser we feel like at the moment. So I don't know about her gym membership, but it's entirely possible that, you know, that's something that she can hang on to that she thinks is something she can be proud of. It's just that we have to look at the big picture of these people. We can't take these sound bites and think, okay, well, here's the problem we're addressing, and, you know, why do I spend my money on addressing this? Let's uh, go to a caller uh, next, uh, CJ, uh, calling us from the Uanda Basin. Uh, CJ, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, and to start off, uh, something that I hadn't planned on talking about, but the gym membership, I, I think that there's another way to look at that. Because what does a gym membership get you? It gets you a locker, a secure place to put things that won't be stolen on the streets and won't be tossed by the police. It also gets you a hot shower every day and a clean towel. So in some ways, that gym membership may have been a brilliant move for that person. Yeah, Because she's got some security and she can keep clean. And if you're clean, you can apply for a job. Um, But that's what I called to talk about. Um, My family and I had been homeless at one point about 30 years ago. um, And it was for some of the reasons that had been mentioned, uh, like losing jobs and so on. But I can tell you firsthand, and I can tell you from having worked with other homeless people since then, that a huge reason for homelessness is that people are victimized by crime. And it's not always the kinds of crimes that that you think about with, you know, violence and being robbed on the street and so on. A lot of it is white-collar crime, wage theft and um, falling prey to various financial scams causes a a lot of the homeless problem we see. And that's one thing that I, 
I don't see being addressed in a meaningful way, um, particularly not in the context of its impact on homelessness. And uh, I'd just like to put that out for the listeners, and I'd appreciate uh, hearing any comments that your guests might have. Okay, thanks, CJ. Appreciate that. You bet. Uh-huh. So uh, let me turn that to Lloyd Pendleton. Um, d- d- victims of crime, including white-collar crime, do you, do you see that? Uh, reasons why families are homeless? <clears throat> that can be a reason. Uh, I don't know. I haven't heard of one specifically in our homeless population here in Utah, but that certainly could, can be part of it. Uh, there's that whole dimension. There's also a lot of people who are very successful, college graduates, and they get into drugs and alcohol and lose their family, lose their business. And we've had several of those that have ended up homeless for several years on the street and are defined as chronically homeless. We get them into housing and they're able to stabilize and move out. So people become homeless. And so it's so it, we just can't, you know, stereotype one and say that's the mm-hmm. problem. We have to have to look at how do we deal with the whole broader issue. We just have about uh, f- three minutes left. I want to get some uh, concluding comments. I, I want to have you uh, comment on this uh, this this idea of a, a mindset has to change, right? And there's a lot of emotional work that needs to be done. So you talked in this article about a, a gentleman who uh, you got into housing, but uh, he, he, he slept on the floor the first couple of nights, in fact. And then he went outside and slept outside. It was only after a while that he came and slept on the bed. Right. Uh, when we started this idea of housing first, we, we came out of New York City, and we said, well, we'll work in Salt Lake City. So we decided to prove this idea be, as we built 100 units for chronically homeless individuals that we'd do a test so, and a pilot. And since I was reared on a ranch and chopped the wood for our stove, I learned to chop the big end of the log first. And so I said, when we do this pilot, we're going to take the most challenging, difficult, chronically homeless persons we can find, and we'll put them into a scattered site housing situation. So we went through that process and identified 17 really challenging ones. And the, the one uh, had been on the street so long that when he went into the apartment, uh, slept on the floor the first night, put his stuff on the bed. The next two or three nights went out and slept by the dumpster, came back into the apartment, slept on the floor for a few nights before finally getting onto the bed. Let me turn to Elaine Taylor. I wonder, uh, question I want to ask you here at the end, how can, how best to help? I think so, sometimes we feel... A little, uh, you know, a little lost, speaking oh, yeah. personally. It's a very impotent feeling, partially because we don't really know the problem we're dealing with. And even having volunteered at Raphael House for as long as I did, and I was on the board of directors at Raphael House for a while, this is a daunting problem. But I think the first issue, the first hurdle is perception. Uh, I thought that CJ was very insightful talking about, first of all, the gym membership, which I'd never thought of, why the woman might have it, but also the white-collar crime. I can't quote actual statistics, but I've read a lot recently that we have more homeless families and more children living in poverty right now than we have had since the Great Depression. And we don't attribute that to the subprime mortgages or the, you know, the businesses that went out of uh, business because of the economic recession, et cetera. That's impacted a huge amount of people. So rather than starting with how do we, you know, what do we do with these people who are on the streets, that's important. But if we look at the root cause of it, what's putting them there? Because in many cases, as CJ said, it could be wage theft, it could be white-collar crime. And we don't tend to address that because that's, of course, where the power centers are. And we, it's easier to look at people who we can say, well, it must be their own fault that, that they're in this situation. Mm. So I think it's information first. And yeah. then also looking at models like what uh, Mr. Pendleton has done with the Housing First model and models like Raphael House, I think, are really important. 
So uh, I'll pose the same question to you, Lloyd Pendleton. How, how best to help? How, how can I help? How can listeners help? Well, I, the way they can help, finances are always needed, but that's somewhat impersonal, as you said it, but that is definitely needed. Uh, more importantly, I think, not only for the homeless individual, but for the person who's providing the service, go and meet individuals like Elaine did and get to know them and find out they're just like you. Same concerns, same issues. So it may be scary and it may be a challenge. And when I walk down the street, I make eye contact and say hello to them. And if I choose to give something, which I generally don't, but if I do, I'll invite them to come in and have a sandwich with me mm-hmm. and visit with them and hear their story. Sometimes they don't want to talk, so I don't say much. But so I reach out not only to give some financial assistance, but to give my attention, my love, my concern, and my interest. So, yes, step forward, and when you do provide service, engage the person Mm. and talk with them. Look them in the eye and tell them you appreciate their capacity to survive on the street. Very good. And uh, I'll just mention a few organizations. There are, there are others. You could Google it. Uh, the Road Home, Catholic Community Services, uh, 4th Street Clinic. Volunteers of America. Volunteers of America. These are all, all organizations uh, doing doing some good. You could you could give money if you wanted or, or uh, it, do as Lloyd suggested. Lloyd Pendleton is former uh, director of Utah's Homeless Task Force. Now he's going around the country talking on the issue. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity, Tom. And Elaine Taylor is an author who uh, has uh, experience with this, uh, starting with the Raphael House, and she's now in uh, um, North Carolina. And uh, the book is Karma, Deception, and a Pair of Red Ferraris. Elaine Taylor, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. And support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and the Best Western Dinosaur Inn, 251 East Main Street in Vernal, offering an outdoor pool, Wi-Fi, and on-site restaurant, half a block from the Natural History Museum and Western Park. Close to the Dinosaur National Monument, details at bestwestern.com. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. I vividly remember the first time I saw one, a small winged creature whirring from flower to flower in the evening light, its long tongue dipping for nectar within tube-shaped blooms. I was mesmerized and struggled for a closer look. If you're thinking I must have seen a hummingbird, you would be making a very common mistake. A mistake, in fact, that has given this critter one of its many nicknames. The winged wonder I saw that summer night was a sphinx moth, also called a hummingbird or hawk moth because of their large size and bird-like characteristics. In all stages of their life, these insects are large. Caterpillars grow to a robust four inches in length, and adult wingspans can measure more than five inches. Sphinx moths are also some of the fastest insects on Earth and have been clocked flying at over 30 miles per hour. Their size, speed, and flying ability reflect those of the hummingbirds so closely that they are commonly misidentified. Sphinx moths are a beloved sight in many Utah gardens. However, they also hold a bit of a devious surprise. The larvae, or caterpillar, of one common species of sphinx moth are well known by vegetable gardeners. They are large and bright green with a distinctive horn near their hind end. Like the adults, 
These larvae go by many names, the most common being the tomato hornworm. Hornworm caterpillars, unlike their adult counterparts, are not beloved by gardeners. They are voracious beasts with the ability to strip the vegetation off a tomato or pepper plant in one day. Aside from our garden plants, young hornworms of other species feed on a variety of vegetation including willow, poplar, and cottonwood trees. Adult moths rely on a host of flowers such as columbine, honeysuckle, larkspur, and evening primrose. Here in Utah, you might come across one of a handful of different species in the sphinx moth family, including the five-spotted hawk moth and the white-lined sphinx. Look for them in late summer evenings as the daylight begins to fade, but be sure to look twice to avoid mistaking them for something they're not. And the next time you find a hornworm on your tomatoes, maybe just relocate the little bugger so that you can enjoy it once metamorphosis changes the beast into a beauty. This is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Thank you for listening to Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour from NPR.